you guys have a Bible, why don't you open up to the book of 2 Kings. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers who would love to get your Bible. If not, we will, uh, as typical, have it on the screen. Uh, 2 Kings, uh, keep your finger um, in chapter 25, which is the very last uh, chapter of the book of 2 Kings. If you have no idea where 2 Kings is, uh, the way someone is super helpful in terms of the information they gave first service, they said it's right after 1 Kings. So um, if you're wondering where 2 Kings is at, um, no, just kidding. Don't, don't hesitate looking at your table of contents. There's no shame in that whatsoever. Second Kings is one of those books that probably you don't necessarily find yourself reading in your morning devotionals. It's a, kind of a challenging book. So Second Kings uh, 25 is what we'll look at. And then uh, you can also turn backwards to Second Kings chapter 17. Uh, we'll be back and forth between those two passages. Um, I want to set the stage a little bit about what we're going to be doing. Uh, we've been in a series on Sunday mornings looking at the book of Acts. For quite a while, and uh, we are taking a break now, moving into this season that we typically call historically called Advent. It's a time to that comes up to uh, Easter, Easter, Christmas. Uh, make sure I get my holidays correct. Um, to remember the birth of Jesus, like what what this is all about. It's a time for us to focus our minds and our thoughts and our attention upon this miracle that we call, uh, in theological terms, uh, the incarnation, which means uh, God who is. Uh, non-physical, God takes upon himself physicality, or God who is not flesh and bone takes upon himself flesh and bone. That's where we get the idea or the concept of incarnation. God incarnates himself, comes into this world for a purpose. And uh, the whole idea behind Advent is to focus our minds and our attention upon the reality, not only of the fact that God did that, but then also beginning to ask the questions, why did God do that? It's a way of prep, uh, preparing our heart to really understand the, the, the vastness, the reality, the, the weightiness of, of this season. Um, so what we're going to be doing over the next uh, four gatherings that we have, so three Sunday mornings and then the last one that Pastor James had mentioned, which is going to be Christmas Eve um, and not Christmas morning. And there's some people have asked, you know, why are we not meeting Christmas morning? I'm already starting to see articles on Facebook saying why your church must have church on Christmas Day. Um, and that, that's nice, and you know. But the reality is, uh, there's a couple reasons why we are not having church on Sunday morning. They're pretty practical. One is San Luis Obispo, as a city, it becomes a ghost town. People just simply leave San Luis Obispo. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are actually not going to be here at Christmas? That's what, see, case in point, right there, case in point. Um, people are gone from the Central Coast, and that does impact uh, how we are able to actually gather because that means we just simply don't have a team. Our, our, our people are gone, and uh, it, it would just be me showing up, having to set up chairs, run sound, play music, and you guys probably don't want that, and it's weird. Um, so the other uh, practical element of that is, is we have staff, the staff that does remain. Uh, we want to give them the day off. Like, like, they work hard. They work hard on Sundays, and then we're going to give them the day off. So Christmas is a time for them to have a time uh, with their families. So we're going to pour our energy into Christmas Eve. Uh, we will worship on Christmas Eve and gather together as a community, and anybody that's going to be left remaining will uh, gather with us on Christmas Eve as well. So um, over the next four gatherings that we have, we will focus our attention on four key elements uh, about what this uh, Christmas story is all about. The four things we'll look at today, we'll look at the subject of brokenness, the importance of this story of humanity that's broken, uh, which is no doubt a dark theme. The second one is yearning, can't read that, or the third one is hope, and the fourth one is joy. So you can see this is sort of telescoping out, starting from uh, dark 
themes or minor notes or dark colors uh, going up to a sense of vibrancy and uh, uh, major notes, the idea of joy and celebration and elation. And that's what we see in really the Christmas story. It begins in darkness. It begins in pain and brokenness and sorrow. And it ends in this great story taking a radically different uh, tone and a radically different note. And so that's what we'll be taking a look at over the next few weeks. And with that, I want to jump in and uh, begin to take a look at the very first one that we'll be focusing our attention on. And it's the subject of brokenness. It's one of the subjects, to be really quite frank with you, that we as a culture have done a really good job at figuring out ways to uh, circumvent around brokenness. Uh, we do this on a lot of different ways. We, we entertain ourselves. Uh, there's, there's a great book called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Um, I, I think it's pretty appropriate. Uh, we do entertain ourselves to death. So anytime there are, are traces or elements of brokenness, uh, we oftentimes try to entertain ourselves. Uh, we narcoticize ourselves. We do all sorts of different types of practices and things to not have to deal with the fact of brokenness, whether it be your own brokenness or whether it be the brokenness of culture at large or the world in which we live in or your family's brokenness or your marriage's uh, brokenness or your friend's brokenness or whatever. We oftentimes try to turn away from and to remove ourselves from that brokenness rather than actually face it. And yet, if you study the story of the Bible and you follow the, the, the narrative of the Bible, you realize that it does not allow you to do that. You have to, uh, at some point, come face to face with the brokenness uh, within uh, humanity. You have to. You can't run away from it. Um, in fact, uh, because we have a God that does not abandon or walk away or he does not circumvent brokenness, he actually steps into brokenness. So if I can give you sort of a, a, an appropriate picture of what the gospel is, what the incarnation is, uh, it's God actually stepping into brokenness, not running away from it, not turning away from it, not even crushing it and destroying brokenness in broken humanity and then starting off some other place and some other segment of the universe, but God actually dealing with the brokenness of his broken image bearers. And the big trick for God is how to actually do away with brokenness without doing away with broken people. The brokenness that you and I are part of without actually doing away with us. Or how can God get rid of the sin without getting rid of us? How can the doctor remove the tumor without ultimately killing the host? You guys follow the idea? This is the whole point of what the Bible is all about. This is a story. But it begins with the tumors. It begins with the disease. It begins in the sense of, of brokenness. Now, uh, I, 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 should, I should correct myself. It actually doesn't begin there. It begins with uh, Genesis 1. Um, but it takes radical shape and spends a lot of time, a lot of chapters, focusing on the reality of the brokenness. And so what I want to do as we begin to jump into this, I want to give a little bit of the story of the people of Israel. Now, I've got to warn you, because what we're going to be looking at today is uh, this really heavy subject matter. It's not easy text. Uh, in fact, the passage that we're going to be reading in the book of 2 Kings, if you know anything about the story of the Bible, you know that 2 Kings is not uh, really a, a light-hearted, cheerful, happy, chipper book to read. It's, it's actually extremely heavy. There's a lot of dark sequences of events throughout the book of 2 Kings. Um, it's, it's, again, it's one of those passages or books that you would not necessarily pick up and read to really encourage yourself because it's filled. I mean, there are moments of encouragement. There's episodes where God breaks through and it's encouraging. But for the most part, the main 
tone uh, and tenor of the entire book is dark. So we got to look at sort of the darkness of this to begin to make some sense out of the whole of what God is up to in and through this great miracle we call the Incarnation. So what we're going to look at is this uh, throwing ourselves in the middle of Israel's history. We're going to see kind of um, them being deported from their land. So uh, I want to I want to give a little bit of more backstory, kind of a thirty thousand foot above all of the story in the book of Second Kings. So basically, the story of the Bible begins with Genesis one. It begins there. God creates all things. God creates uh, Im- uh, image bearers, humanity, people that uh, reflect. God and God puts Adam and Eve in a garden that's perfect, that's good. And God tells Adam and Eve that I want you to be uh, basically vice regent, so uh, people that reign with God. God actually gives this sense of power and authority into the hands of humanity that as they're partnering with God, as they're working together with God and ruling well over all creation, they have this raw potential, massive raw potential to bring about good in this world and bring about blessing towards one another and bring about the development of all sorts of uh, things that are awesome. But Adam and Eve, rather than partnering with God, turning to God, they turn away from God. And that's the story of Genesis chapter 3. They turn away from God. And as a, as a result of that, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. So if you want to begin to think in terms of themes, that uh, partnership with God leads to life rebellion from God leads to banishment from the garden. Following so far? So you've just picked up a major theme in the Bible. Uh, obedience with God part, leads to partnership, which leads to life. Uh, disobedience with God to God leads to banishment from this good life, the good life that is connected to the garden. Then later on in their history, God calls Abram. Uh, Abraham later, his name is changed to Abraham, has uh, sons and his sons have sons. And we kind of begin to see the the, the, the flowering, the blooming forth of this family. God partners with Abraham. He basically creates what we would call a covenant. If you were here last week, I showed a great video on this, that uh, God actually partners, partners with Abraham. He kind of does so in this context of a covenant. He says, hey, here's what I'm going to do for you, and you do this for me. You follow me, you obey me, you walk with me, and I will take care of you. I will give you a nation of uh, a family that's going to grow into this nation, and you, Abraham, will be a blessing to all nations. And Abraham does a pretty good job. Uh, he's got his moments of doubt and distrust, but for the most part, he's a, he's a pretty good guy. But his sons and through the lineage of his life, they begin to kind of veer and drift and fall away from God. And so rather than uh, his uh, family partnering with God, for the most part, they begin to kind of drift. You begin to see the drift. They end up going down into the land of Egypt. If you're familiar with the story, uh, there's a famine in the land. They needed food. Going down to Egypt was not necessarily a bad thing. So you go where the food's at, and Egypt was this uh, world militaristic superpower, economic superpower. They had the food. So Israel, uh, they went down there to get food, and what ended up uh, intending to be just sort of a a quick walk through the express line ended up becoming their new home. They ended up camping out and living there for 400-plus years. But this is where generation after generation began to fall under the oppression of Egypt. And Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, and the succession of kings began to oppress the people of Israel. So you would imagine uh, this massive world economic slash militaristic superpower oppressing this small minority people group called Jews. And uh, they began to cry out to God for help. And God rescues them. 
uh, through what we would call the Exodus. God frees these people, these slaves, um, out of Egypt, and then God brings them to this place called Sinai. Are right, you following so far? You doing good? History lesson, 101. Um, in Sinai, God makes, this, uh, he makes a covenant with them. So again, God reiterates his covenant. He says, look, uh, you guys are sons and daughters of Abraham. I made a covenant with him, but I'm going to make a covenant with you guys. You guys want to be my, my people? And they're like, yes, we will be your people. And they swear this allegiance. We will be uh, devoted and committed to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, I will be devoted and committed to you guys. And part of the covenant, I'm just kind of being uh, short in terms of some of the, the information here. God says, as long as you follow me, as long as you continue in this partnership and you're faithful to me, I'll give you the land. I will give you the land of, uh, land of Canaan. It will be yours. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey, which is another way of basically saying it's going to be prosperous. Everything you touch will uh, flourish and be good. These, this is image, imagery and language from the Garden of Eden. All right, just following so far? It's like God is saying, you partner with me, and all that was lost from uh, Adam and Eve will begin to be restored. You follow me? So you get the idea that God's, want, God's wanting to repartner with people that have broken covenant and partnership. And what happens with the people of Israel is rather than partnering with God and being faithful to God, they begin to waver. They drift. They turn away from God. They fall far away from God. And what ends up happening is they become like the rest of the nations. And God always told him, he says, look, if you drift from me and you begin to act like the rest of the nations, um, then you will walk away from the protection and the life that I'm, I'm vowing to give you. And it will be on your doing. It won't, it won't be me. It won't be me out to bring destruction. And there are moments where God would say stuff like this. But at, at the end of the day, it's God saying that like, you are walking away from my protective hand and covering over you guys. And you will then become bait to every other world superpower that's on the planet. And in this case, what happens are there are two world superpowers, economic, militaristic superpowers that have taken the place of Egypt. And they are embodied by uh, nation empires or states known as Assyria. And the other one is Babylon. All right, you guys, you guys doing okay so far with History 101? So, so this is what's happening. This is now we, where we enter into the story. It's this long, sordid history of the people of Israel um, drifting from, from Yahweh. So with that, let's jump into the book of 2 Kings. I'm going to start at chapter 25. And there's basically four things that we're going to begin to see take place. We're going to see the sense of rebellion, uh, invasion, destruction, and exile. So again, rebellion, invasion, destruction, exile. I know it's, it's, not, it's not happy stuff. Um, I, I told you this is a really dark theme, um, and we have to deal with it. We have to think about this, because the reality is Israel's story is, for the most part, the human story. Now, I'm going to jump in to this story first by telling a little bit of a story that, that I had an encounter with. So, most of you guys know that I got saved somewhere around when I was like 15, almost 16 years old. I grew up in Huntington Beach. Um, my parents divorced when I was like 12. Well, my dad got remarried when I was around 14. Uh, my new stepmom wanted to find a church that was, that was not Catholic. That's where I grew up in. It was the Catholic background. And uh, we started going to this church called Calvary Chapel. 
down in Costa Mesa. And uh, when I was probably like a sophomore going to my junior year in high school, um, I started surfing towards the end of my freshman year. So surfing was my life. I've told you this on other occasions that, that when I started surfing, my entire, I became a disciple of surfing. Like my entire world changed. The type of clothes I wore changed. The type of music changed. The type of friends I would be seen hanging out with changed. My language changed. I was, I was a disciple of, of surfing. My whole world changed. So surfing was really important to me as a young 15 slash 16 year old. So when I started going to Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was filled with uh, high school students that were really, really good surfers. I don't know why, but it was just, it was just a, it's what it was. And so there was all sorts of good surfers from like Huntington Beach High School and Marina High School and all these other high schools that had really good surf teams and really good surfers. So I walked into this high school group and, and not only was I taken back by the fact that these, these people liked what I liked. They were part of the same posse of people that I, I was a part of. And not only that, they weren't, they weren't weird. They weren't geeky. They were, just, they were like normal people, actually really good surfers. And, uh, and I looked up to these guys. There's one guy that actually kind of taken a liking to me for whatever reason. Uh, his name was Colin. And I began to spend uh, some time with Colin. And Colin was uh, probably about two or three years older than me. But when you're you know, 15 years old, 16, uh, that's really, really old, much, much older. So, but he was, he was helping me. He was like discipling me. He actually pulled me aside. He's like, I would love to just kind of help you uh, help answer any questions that you have. And he's a really good surfer. He went to a school called Marina. He was a really good surfer, and people knew who he was. And, and, uh, and I was, you know, as, as a young guy, I was kind of taken back by the fact that this guy is a really good surfer, was investing in me, pouring his, his energy and his time and effort into me. And uh, I remember just being blown away by the fact that this guy had a, so much Bible knowledge and so many good answers and so much capable uh, and more able to help coach me along my understanding of who God was. So what ended up happening was he was kind of pouring into me for, I don't know, probably a good six months, maybe a year or something like that, maybe a little bit more. And then after about a year, um, I remember seeing Colin and chatting with him, and he was, there was something different about him. Rather than being warm and helpful and kind and expressive and excited, uh, he was distant. There was, he was cold, and he was, there was something about him that was filled with a sense of, of angst, and there was, a, there was a different tone, different spirit about Colin. Now, his... Colin's brother also was involved in the high school group. His name was Jim, and he was a couple years older than Colin. And I remember asking him, like, what's, what's going on with your, your brother? What, what's happening? He's like, oh, uh, he has been on this long path of, of drift, and he has started doing stuff that he shouldn't be doing. And at the end of the day, uh, he comes to find out. I come to find out a few months later, he's completely denied his faith and walked away from Jesus and calls himself an atheist and doesn't want to have anything to do with God. And I, was, I, w- I remember for the very first time in my life, again, I was, a, I was a young Christian, I was shocked by this. Like, I didn't know that happened. I didn't know that you can go from being such a, a source of life and help and hope and strength to somebody and then going from that into a, a complete state of, of denial, denying God. It's, it was brand new to me. I didn't know that it even existed. But from that point forward, I, I remember always the, the story of, of Colin and how shocking that was. And to this day, um, I, I don't think, I remember asking my, my friend Jim not too long ago, he said his brother's still not, not a Christian, still has denied Jesus, and still sees himself as somewhat of an atheist. And, and I remember just thinking, gosh, it's, it's, it's sad to me, because he was such a help to me in my young stage as, as a Christian. Um, by God's grace, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that his story's not finished. Um, I still have hope of redemption. I still have hope that Jesus is able to do something in his life. But why do I tell you the story? Because in reality, Colin's story is, is the story of Israel. It's the story of, of a lot of us. It's, it's our story. It's, it's a story of drift. It's a story of what can happen 
to a human being that if they begin to make a series of choices and decisions that over a period of time, you can drift. You drift away from the very things that at one point you were anchored in. And this is what we see in the story of the people of Israel. So I want to read this, and I want to engage it, and I want to think about it. So beginning in chapter 24, I'm going to kind of start a couple of verses back, and we'll just read through it. So for the most part, again, two things you need to know about today. One, it's, it'll, it'll just be straight up dark. I, I promise you I will end on, on a high note, though, um, and, uh, or end with you, you think, uh, visual colors. I'll, I'll end on a bright color, hopefully. Um, but in order for us to get to the bright color or the major note, we have to uh, lay a pretty significant foundation of dark colors and, and minor notes. It's going to be dark, it's going to be heavy, but just, just wade through it. Think about it. Don't, don't tune it out. Don't desensitize yourself to it. Don't look at it and be like, my life is already bogged down with lots of darkness. I don't need more darkness. Let, let your darkness, if that's what you're dealing with, somehow collate with the darkness that we see here in the story. Let your story somehow collate with the story of the people of Israel and try to find hope in this story because this is where ultimately our hope is going to be found. So let's jump in, begin to read. I'll make some comments as we go through. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 18 starts off, it says this. Zechariah was a king. He was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatul, and she was the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Crazy name. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. And because, for because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. This is God saying, uh, enough is enough. Uh, the level of sin and rebellion and turning away from me has kind of mounted to a level where they will be now taken off into exile. In verse, uh, the very last part of that verse, it says this, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So at this point right now, what you have is this major world uh, economic militaristic superpower called Babylon that is forming what we would call a siege. So if you don't know what a siege is, um, most major cities back in the day, they would have these walls. So don't think of them as being massive cities. They were uh, think of like the size of downtown, maybe four or five city blocks, not, not really large, but they would have a large wall around it. But because Jerusalem was kind of up on a mountain, uh, it put it in a little bit of a strategic advantage. And the way that these superpowers would overtake these cities is they would build these sieges around them, where they would maybe build up dirt up against the wall, where they can maybe bring their, their, you know, their weapons in there, or they would gather around them and make sure that nobody can come in and out of the city. Now, you imagine if you do that, um, at some point, you're going to run out of food, you're going to run out of water. That's exactly what happened. They would basically starve them out to where they would be forced to have to come out of the actual city walls. And that's what was happening in terms of what we would see about a siege. Verse 125 says this, And in the ninth year of the reign, in the tenth month of the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem to lay siege against it. And they built siege works all around it. And the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe, because again, they don't have any food, in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So what we see is that this is basically a two-year siege that, uh, imagine, this city was in insane turmoil for two years against this massive world superpower that was literally starving them um, out of their city walls. In verse 4, it says, Then 
a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden through the Chaldean, uh, though the Chaldeans were around the city. So uh, there was an army of uh, Jewish uh, fighters. Uh, wh- what are they doing? You guys, you guys follow that? What, what, what did they do? <laughs> they ran for their lives is what happened. They, they, they saw that a breach in the, in the city wall happened, and rather than fighting against the world, uh, economic, uh, militaristic superpower, they, they all ran. They all ran as fast as they could to get away because they, they know that uh, there's, there's no way they're going to be able to fight against and resist uh, Babylon uh, now. It says, uh, it says they ran all the way down into the direction of the Arabah, which is uh, the wilderness. And it says that uh, the Chaldeans were around the city and they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans, they pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho, which is uh, several miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. So these guys fled pretty far. It says, in all of his army, they were scattered from him, and they captured the king, and they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed a sentence upon him. So imagine, here, this particular king, Zedekiah, um, he was the significant leader over the people of Israel. He'd been leading the people of Israel, but has he been a good king? Had he led them in the ways of Yahweh or in the ways of denial of, of Yahweh? It was in denial of Yahweh. And so therefore, um, there, there was all this brokenness, all this destruction was coming upon the people of, of Israel. And so they finally catch him. They, they bring this King Zedekiah before the king of Babylon. So imagine this, this massive confrontation, though it wasn't really much of a contest or a confrontation, uh, other than the fact that Zedekiah was, was going to uh, you know, face his sentence. So it says that there was a sentence that was placed upon him. Uh, it says in verse 7, again, these are just simple, quick, little bulleted items. It says, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. So, um, again, I, just, I want you to feel the, the weightiness of this because uh, back in that ancient patriarchal world, uh, sons were the most highest prized possession that anybody could, could have. Like, your sons were your pride and joy. Your sons were your key, your passage into future generations. No sons no future legacy. Lots of sons, lots of potential for future legacy, for your name to be carried on from generation to generation to generation. But in this context, uh, Zedekiah had all of his sons slaughtered right in front of his own eyes. It was, it was, it was not only painful, but it was, it was, a, it was an act of uh, utter humiliation to say, this is what your future holds for you, annihilation. And they slaughtered his sons before his eyes, and then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They blinded him. And they bound him in chains, and they took him off to Babylon. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard of the servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord. The very center of Jerusalem was probably the most significant, most um, most important building of all, and uh, in, in it stood uh, with a sense of uh, beauty and, and pride. It was literally the pride and joy of every Jewish person. It, it, was, it was a temple. It was a place where every Jew would go worship Yahweh. It was a place where every Jew who had offended the name of Yahweh would go and be forgiven. It was a place where uh, they would interact with, with Yahweh. It was, it was the most significant, most important place to go. Now, even that is, is gone. These symbols, these realities... Um, that once brought a definition, once brought identity to uh, the people of Israel. Literally everything has been stripped out of their possession. And it goes on to say, and they burnt the house of 
uh, the Lord and the king's house and all of the houses in Jerusalem. So not only was the temple destroyed, the very place of worship, but also the very king's palace. So imagine King David, uh, Jerusalem is built upon this, this incredible legacy and history of King David. Um, that's, that's gone too. Everything, everything, every symbol, every image. In, in some ways, we can somewhat relate to this, somewhat, very small way. Um, most of us uh, can remember where we were at on 9-11. Most of us can remember what was happening, uh, where we were at, what we were thinking, what we were doing when the very symbols of America were being destroyed. All right? There was a reason why they attacked certain uh, emblems and symbols of, of America, um, because it was a way of basically saying, look, what the world trade, uh, you know, the, the, the money, the financial center, as well as the militaristic center of the people of America will be uh, attacked. And that, that was basically the idea. It wasn't just simply the buildings were attacked. It, they were the symbols that these buildings stood for. And that's what was happening with the people of Israel, except everything was simply stripped from their possessions. And then it goes on to say, and I'll wrap this up in verse 10, it says, And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captains of the guard, they broke down the walls around Jerusalem, and, they rest, and all the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters uh, who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest in the land to be the vine dressers and the plowmen. So what's happening here is uh, basically we see finally the people of Israel are literally being taken off out of their land, out of their home territory, marched off in a, in a sort of a humility type of a, or a humiliation form of a march, uh, taken into an entire different land that, that did not belong to them. Um, they, they were literally a people in exile, having lost everything. Um, and then we're told that it was just the poorest of the land that were left behind. So uh, Babylon would oftentimes, as well as Assyria, when they would go in, they would march off the best of the best from their homeland and take them off. And, you know, I've said this before, it'd be kind of like if Canada... Uh, decided to completely take over, or Mexico took over America, um, and they marched the best of the best off, the brightest, the smartest, those that go to Cal Poly, and just simply left those that, that don't have really good jobs, or aren't really smart, or don't have wealth, or don't drive nice cars, left to just sort of fend for themselves. That was kind of basically what happened. And so what we see basically in the story here is it's, it's, it's filled with a sense of sobriety and, and somberness, and it's intended to be read that way because of, of what's happened. Now, I want you to go back a little bit uh, into the 17th chapter. We're going to read a little bit there because uh, what we see in chapter 17 is sort of a, an op-ed, a, a commentary from the author as he's scratching his head and contemplating and considering like what happened here. How did this take place? How in the world did this incredibly beautiful nation that was once blessed by God, that was once set and set up to succeed and flourish and be a light in a nation or in a world of darkness. How did this happen? How did this nation drift off into this place, ultimately of exile? And chapter 17 is basically his attempt to try to comment and identify what were some of the issues that kind of led up to this? So again, I, I just want to read it. I'm going to make some comments on this, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up with some final concluding thoughts. But you guys doing okay? You guys doing all right? Heavy stuff, right? You guys, you guys are coming to church today like, I want something really good and encouraging, and, and unfortunately, you didn't get it. 
yet, 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 all right? So just hold tight, hold tight. I, I promise you uh, uh, um, a major note at some point. So verse 7 starts off like this. And this occurred because of the people of Israel. They had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, there are at least two um, exiles in, in the book of, of Kings. Uh, if you know much about the history of the people of Israel, their nation was divided. They had the north and the south. And he's referring to uh, the southern part of the people of Israel that was taken off by the emperor of, of, of Assyria. Um, but nonetheless, it, it resonates throughout the rest of the story. But the point of the matter is he's, he's considering what has happened. How did this take place? And his assessment is that this has occurred because the people of Israel, they have sinned against the Lord their God, and uh, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. So what's really fascinating to me is in his first identifying uh, of and assessing what has actually happened, he first of all, his mind goes to this covenantal God. And it's amazing to me, the very first thing that comes off of his lips in writing this on these pages is to say th this was a community of people that had once been in covenantal relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh rescued them. It was an act of grace, an act of kindness on God's behalf, doing something for the people of Israel. And what he goes on to say is that, unfortunately, they have turned from Yahweh. It's, it's like describing in other cases and other places throughout the Old Testament, uh, the relationship between Israel and, and God and Yahweh was like that of a marriage, where they said yes to each other at the altar. Yes, we will be faithful to each other. Yes, I will be faithful to you. And at some point in the, in, in the movement of that marriage, at some point, uh, Israel, one of the sides of the spouse, uh, relation, spousal relationship, was unfaithful. They betrayed. They they, they encountered other lovers and gave themselves away to other lovers. And the point that he's basically making is that this is exactly what's happened. That God was faithful. God was good. God rescued. God redeemed these people. And fortunately, they drifted. They drifted from God. Now, he begins to unpack a little bit about what that drift looks like. So this is really important to identify because here's the thing that you'll, you'll, you'll need to think about. That... The people of Israel didn't just simply walk into the land and then walk out in a form of exile. There was stuff that happened in between entering into the land and exile. It's, it's this stuff that happened in between, this middle space, that the prophet now is, is, is pondering, considering. Like, like, what were the choices? What were the decisions? What were the actions? One by one, what were they that actually led to this continual sequence of drift? Ultimately, the point of, of exile. And the reason why this is so important is because, just like my, my buddy Colin, he didn't just wake up one day and deny Jesus. Nobody wakes up one day and just says, I, I deny Jesus. It always happens by way of a sequence of, of decisions, of actions that we make, that we do, and sometimes things that we choose not to do. It's, it's when we, for example, when we say, I refuse to forgive that person. That at some point, your refusal to engage the God of forgiveness and forgive and allow forgiveness not only shower upon you, but wash through you to other people, at some point, little known to you, years down the road, who knows, maybe months, maybe years, that will begin to lead towards a sequence of drift. Where at some point, you find yourself in some place in your life you would have never imagined 
the people of Israel would have never imagined themselves losing their temple, losing the palace of the great King David, losing the very land that Yahweh had given to them and being taken off into exile. They just would have never dreamed of it. But it happened as a result of hundreds, thousands of decisions to disobey God, to not obey God. Actions of sins of, of, of commission, committing things, sins of omission, not doing things that we know we should be doing. And this is what happened with the people of Israel. And the writer begins to unpack some of these things, and we'll make some comments as we go through this. He says, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned. Jump down a little bit to where it says, verse 8. It says, and they walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel, and the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. So what he's saying is that these actions of the nations, uh, other nations that were not, 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 the, not covenant, they weren't in relationship with God. The thing you've got to understand first and foremost is that God has always operated in an act of, of relationship. It's not mechanical. That's the thing you need to understand about the relationship with God is that it is first and foremost a relationship. And with any other relationship, any other relationship in this world, uh, that relationship can, can be fractured, can be broken. It can be soiled. It can be ruined. Betrayal, uh, distrust, anger, uh, fits of rage, wrath. All of these things, oftentimes, lack of forgiveness, all of these things at some point can soil and ruin and destroy those, those relationships. It's the same with, with God, turning from God, betraying God, turning our backs away from that relationship, that commitment, faithfulness, fidelity to who God is, can oftentimes lead to these things, this trust in God. And that's what we see with the people of Israel in this slow path towards drift. It says, and they walked in the customs of the nations. So rather than walking in the customs of God or the traditions or the word of God, they walked in the customs of the nations. They were following a template. The template that they were following happened to be the template of the land. And the same is true, again, you know, for us. We always make lots of uh, parallels that, that there is a template um, in which our world around us, the media is constantly throwing on us, saying, here's how to be human. Here's how to truly flourish and thrive in America, in the world. And if you're not careful you will miss the fact that the template that America says, this is what it means to look like to be human, is, is actually very different in some ways than the template that God says, this is what it looks like to be human. Um, that there are things that, that, that are really not in sync with what it means to be human in terms of the relationship with God. And so the children of Israel were being influenced by the nations as opposed to being influenced by God. And it was all part of the drift. And so we go on to see in verse 9, it says, And the people of Israel did, secret, did secretly against the Lord, their God, the things that were not right. So what's fascinating to me is this slow process towards drift begins, not in the public, but in the private, in the secret. It begins behind doors. It begins in private web browsers. It begins in places where we don't want to be seen. It begins in places where it's, it's dark and, and we're not talking about stuff. It begins in the margins. That's where it always begins. It begins in those secret places. That's what we see with the people of Israel. Their drift began in the secret places. And it begins to work its way externally, outwardly. And he goes on and he says, And the people of Israel did uh, secretly against the Lord the things that were not right. They built themselves uh, high places in the towns, in the watchtower, a fortified city. And they set up for themselves uh, pillars of Azurim on every high hill and every green tree. Now, you guys, I'm certain all, all know what the Azurim are. You're all very familiar with that. Just kidding. Um, 
So I got to unpack this a little bit. Again, this is like 3,500 years ago. So what in the world is he talking about? High places in Azurim. So I'm going to show you uh, an, an image. Um, so back in the day, uh, the people of Israel, they would worship two primary uh, gods that were actually gods of the ancient um, Canaanites, the people that lived in the land of Canaan. Um, the two primary gods were called Baal, B-A-A-L, which will come into the story a little bit, another one called Azra. She was a, a goddess. So the god, uh, lowercase g, Baal, and then the goddess Azra. And they would have these things called Azurim, which is the plural of, of Azra. So you have Azra, and then you multiply her. You get Azurim, you know, plural. Um, and they would make these statues. And throughout the land, they would, they would erect these statues, and they would actually erect phallic symbols. So, so literally, um, phallic, I'm not going to explain it to you guys, are, you guys are adults, phallic symbols all throughout the land. And it was basically a way of saying, hey, if you want to worship um, Azra, here's, here's, here's the sign that Azra is, is worshipped here. Um, uh, Baal, if you can see that image in the very middle, uh, there's two things that he's holding. One is he's holding a sword. The second is he's actually holding a, a lightning bolt. Um, and so if you think about the worship of Baal, Baal was uh, the worship of power, the worship of power. So if you are an oppressed people group um, and you need power to overthrow your oppressors or you need to be able to crush the opposition, you go and you worship Baal and you pay whatever prices that there are to be paid. And this is what the worship of Azra or the worship of Baal would look like. So power and the second one is um, Azra is sex, fertil fertility. So if you needed to have children, you wanted to make sure that your children were going to be born safe, and make sure that your, your spouse or concubine or whatever it was is going to give a, a successful birth, you would go and worship the goddess of, of Azra. And sometimes it was just not even necessarily wor worried about fertility. It was about just uh, the pleasure, having sex just because it's fun having sex. Just absolute, nothing more than just kind of simple engagement, uh, simple uh, casual forms of sex. And that's, that's what it was, the worship of, of Azra. So if you can put it into the context. Uh, these were the two main gods and goddesses that were worshipped, uh, power and, and sex. Power and sex. I, I realize that these are so ancient, so far removed from our modern culture because we just simply do not worship power and sex in, in America today, right? Um, no, I mean, I mean, look, the fact is, is that this, this is so relevant. It's exactly what Israel was being tripped up on. Power Sex, power and sex, and, and it did involve um, prostitution, involved pornography, which is basically what these images are. These are like, you know, ancient tribal forms of pornography. You look at them, obviously, for too long, you begin to realize that that's exactly what it is. They, they, they were images that would stimulate or arouse sexual desire in the people, and then it would engage in the sexual acts. But this is what we see Israel uh, drifting into. They're literally picking up habits of the land around them, mirroring, acting like, just like the rest of the land, and therefore they are engaging or entering into this, this process of drift. Drift. Verse 10, it says, So they set up for themselves uh, pillars of Azram on every hill and under every green tree, and there they made these offerings in the high places, and the nations did whom that the Lord had carried away out of the land, and they provoked God to anger. Verse 12 says, And they served these idols, of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by the servants, the prophets. So what's going on right here is that God's basically reminding them. They say, look, throughout your history, I've sent people to you to, to remind you of the covenant. 
Um, one scholar described the prophets, you know, like Isaiah and Hosea and all these other prophets, as covenantal watchdogs. I love that, that image. That their job was to go around and be like, remember who you are. You're, you, you are Yahweh's people. Yahweh redeems you. Yahweh set you free. He set your fathers, your forefathers, your, your history free from these oppressors. And to deny and to turn away from Yahweh, you are turning back into another form of oppression. An oppression that comes as a result of worshiping these other false gods. So you are literally trading off one oppression for another oppression. And these prophets would come and basically say, come back to Yahweh. Come back to God. He'll forgive you. He'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. He'll receive you back. You just got to turn back to him. Um, and it goes on to say here in the story, which is kind of fascinating, verse 14, but they would not listen because they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they despised the statutes and the covenant that their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. And they went after false idols and they became false. That translation also can be translated as this. They worshiped worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. So, so here's some more data in terms of, of what led or what contributed to their drift was that when they were drifting, God was faithful to send people to speak to them, to remind them of their covenant. Uh, these would be the prophets. And yet what happened was the people's hearts became hardened. Um, you know what hardness of heart is? Is it's basically what happens when we hear truth from God and we're like, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. I don't want that. And we get hostile. We get frustrated. And we say things like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Or we unfriend you on Facebook. Or we walk away from that relationship. Or we leave that church. Or we leave that small group. Or we leave that group of friends. Because the words that they have to say are frustrating to us. Because what's happening, what's happening is you're in a place where perhaps the voice of Yahweh is coming to you as, as an act of grace. As an act of grace. It's, it's, it's okay, in the context of a medical world, it's like someone, Surgeon General coming and saying, look, if you smoke more cigarettes, the, that, that lump on your lung will continue to grow. And there's a possibility that that lump will grow so large that your, your body will become one with that cancer and your, your body will die with the cancer. <laughs> this is what the prophets would do. They'd be like, look, you've got to put some distance between you and the sin that's causing you to drift. You and the desires that are throwing you into the cycle of denying God. And that's what these prophets would do. So you got you to always ask yourself, are, are there voices speaking in your life right now? Are there, are there people? Maybe it's mom or grandma or someone that you know or uh, you know, a Bible study leader or someone that is speaking truth into your life. Um, please think about this. Be really careful how you hear that. Be really careful how you hear. There is a danger of our hearts growing hard. And what, what hardness is, is basically saying, I've heard that before. It's hardness is basically saying, my, my heart is not moved by that. It's not animated by the same truth that once animated it. it. It doesn't come to life in the way that it once did. Everything just sort of flattens out. It becomes discolored. It becomes desaturated. It's not full of vibrancy in life anymore. It's just, in some ways, it might even become annoyance. It just becomes white noise. That's hardness of heart. Be careful. You, you actually may be numbing yourself to the very voice of God, which is the voice of life. That's a path to drift. 
It's a path to exile. It's a path to banishment from the Garden of Life. And this is what we see the people of Israel wrestling with. I'm going to wrap this up and be done. So, let me finish this. It goes on to say, uh, pick it up around the middle part of verse 15. It says, they went after false gods and became false, or worthless idols, they became worthless. Um, what the writer here is, is, is cueing us into is that there's something very curious about what we devote ourselves to. Uh, the Bible word for that would be worship. Um, the fact is that every single one of us, we, we worship something. And if you think of worship as an act of like singing, singing songs to someone playing guitar, then, then you've literally flattened out the, the, the beauty of, of what worship really is. What worship is is basically the engagement of one's heart, soul, mind, and energy to something other than yourself. I mean, it can be yourself, but that's, that's what worship is. It's giving the sum total of all that you are over to something. You spend your money joyfully on that. You spend your time joyfully on that. It could be a video game, like, like you may be a worshiper of video games, where that's where you find your life. That's where you find your, your, your sense of identity, your place of belonging. It's what uh, allows you to kind of make your life, way, make your way through the challenges and difficulties of life. You just play more video games, invest more hours, spend and drop lots more money. It may be porn, it may be uh, drinking, it may be uh, drugs, it may be relationships, it may be a sense, whatever, I mean, you can fill in the blank. I mean, it's a vast, broad, or I think it was John Calvin said something to the effect that our hearts are like these idle factories. They're really, really adept at creating a catered version of an idol to every individual need. Which means, in this room alone, there's probably thousands of idols that you and I give ourselves to. But an idol, you worship it enough, at, at some point you'll become like it. You become desensitized like it. If the need to be affirmed and cared for and loved by somebody else is the number one driving fashion or, or uh, fiber in your life that causes you to, to, to flourish, to function. Like you wake up in the morning, you're like, I need someone to affirm me. I need someone to recognize and to identify my greatness. At some point, you will begin to make compromises to get that affirmation that's needed. Maybe giving your body over to that person sexually. Maybe doing things, favors for other people that you would have never in a million years envisioned, imagined yourself doing. But because that thing has become this element of, of God in your life. It has functionally become an idol in your life. You will gladly and joyfully at some point give yourself to it. But what happens is you become a shell of yourself. You literally become less than human. We have a word for that, dehumanized. That's what idolatry does. It dehumanizes us. It turns us into something less than what God intended for us to be, which is to be human, fully alive in God. That's, that's what idolatry does. And so God's people were giving themselves over to this, and they were becoming broken versions of themselves. You guys doing all right? It's heavy stuff. I know. Just about done. All right. A few more minutes, and I'll wrap this up, man. I promise you I'm going to end it on a, on a high note. Let's, let's go to the high note now. You guys ready? You guys okay with the high note now? I can, I can still keep talking darkness. It's cool? All right. Let's keep talking darkness. Just kidding. Um, why don't you turn to the very last uh, chapter, chapter 25 again, and I want to finish with this. Wrap it up here. Long and short of it, he finishes up that little section, chapter 17, by just simply describing that the people were ultimately taken off into Assyria. Uh, they were exiled. They were banished. 
as a result of this slow drift away from God into death and destruction and brokenness. Now, the story ends in 2 Kings chapter 22, on a, on a, or 25, uh, on a really strange note. And I'll just read it and I'll make some closing comments and I'm done. It says in verse 27, it says, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So how, how long have they been in exile now? Uh, 37 years. So fast forward, you know, almost an entire generation of people. Back in the day, people would live around 40, 45, maybe 50 years. So fast forward an entire generation of people. Now it says, and in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, says, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Murdoch, king of Babylon, in that year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings so who were there in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. Uh, and for his allowance, so he gets paid, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to the daily needs as long as he lived. And then the story is over. It concludes. That's it. That's a really weird, strange way to kind of conclude this this epic drama, this epic narrative of darkness. Why? Well, no one really knows for sure, but there's all sorts of commentators that would suggest that this is actually ending on sort of a high note. It's a way of basically saying, look, all is not dark. Why? Why, why is that the case? Because this guy Jehoiakim is actually in the lineage of, of King David, and he's actually up in the, in the upline of, of Jesus. So when we talk about the celebration of Jesus coming into this world, God stepping into humanity, God actually steps into humanity by way of a race, right? God comes into humanity by way of Jewish people. Uh, not that the Jewish people are, 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 are better than any other group of people, but this happens to be the, na- the race of people that God has selected, God has chosen to just simply come into this world. King Jehoiakim is a distant relative of, of Jesus. And it ends on this note of saying, and Jehoiakim, who was the enemy to the king of Babylon, for whatever reason, we're not told why, the king of Babylon says, listen, let's, let's take off your prison robes and let's exchange those for robes of freedom. And guess what? You're going to be welcome to come to my dinner table and you're going to be eating with the king. And you're going to be given an allowance. You're going to be treated in a way. And this, I believe, this is the Holy Spirit's way of saying, look, in the midst of that free fall toward brokenness, God has not abandoned you. In the midst of whatever type of brokenness or destruction you find yourself entangling with or ensnared by or troubled by or sin that has happened to you that has caused a crushing sense of brokenness and pain upon you, or which you have been the contributor of it, or some form or version or fusion of both. You have been sinned against, and you have contributed to the sin of this world, the brokenness of this world, the rebellion. We have all entered into this status of drift. In the midst of that drift comes this this little echo of hope. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's inviting you. He's reminding us. I think of Jesus, the night that he was betrayed. He sits down with his disciples and he says, share a meal with me. The king, the king of all kings, says, though you've all been my enemies, you've all abandoned me, you all will abandon me. I invite you to come, partake, participate, be part of this feast that I invite you to. That's what the incarnation is all about. 
we have a God that in spite of how, how evil and broken this world has become. C.S. Lewis would put it this way as he famously describes, he says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He says he is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Fallen man is not just simply a human creature that just needs improvement. Teach him, feed him, give him some nice food, give him a nice place to live, and he will improve. He will become better. He will progress. That's the error of thinking of progressive reality in our world, that we don't progress. We just continue to figure out new ways to sin. But he says the reality is that human beings are, are actually rebels that need to learn how to lay down their arms and turn to God who brings wholeness. Uh, one of the scholar theologian put it this way. He says, sin is not really an act of wrongdoing, though it is that. He says, it is also a power within that has a life of its own. That when we give ourselves over to that current of sin, it takes us to places that we would have never envisioned or never imagined. And we become part of this problem. The disease begins to overtake us. But the hope of the gospel is that God invites us, says, come to me. And I'll give you life. So, that's where I conclude. It's to think about the depth of the brokenness. It's all around us. Don't turn away from it. Don't narcoticize yourself from it. Don't entertain yourself away from it. Face it. Face it. But face it with the reality of knowing that you're partnering with God who also faces it and seeks to undo it. Seeks to bring healing into the midst of the disease and seeks to bring order out of that chaos. So whatever types of circumstances your life may be in a place of free fall or complete drift and completely off the road already, you have a God that welcomes you and invites you to come to him. That's the good news that we have. That's what makes Christmas ultimately in the end so full of joy. So why don't we all stand and let's respond. We're going to sing a couple songs in closing. And... I'm going to give you guys a moment to just think about and pray and ask God if, if there's areas in your life that you need prayer for. And we don't ever want to give too much of an opportunity where we miss moments where God wants to, uh, to speak and pray for us. So if, if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, you find yourself maybe in a place where you're drifting, you're feeling the, the gravity of that drift. Uh, or maybe you're like in free fall. You've already fallen off the cliff and you're like in this free fall mode. And you're, you're not even really sure where the bottom is at. Or you are in a place where you feel the constant tug of drift, but you don't want to drift. You just, you just need a touch of God's presence and power upon your heart to strengthen you, to help you, to, to reaffirm who you are in Christ. 